Lou and Jeremy were in their mid-30s and were very close friends. They attended the same church and they met regularly for coffee and prayer and on a regular basis they played sports against one each other, against each other. And, and these two guys were very, very competitive and they loved to win. Now there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but unfortunately in their case their competitiveness resulted in a streak of pride that permeated their relationship. When Lou would beat Jeremy at tennis, he just had to gloat a little bit. And when Jeremy outplayed Lou in one-on-one basketball, it was hard not to boast a little bit. And they both did it, and yet they both also hated being on the receiving end of those kinds of boasts. And their expressions of pride and their feelings of wounded pride. This was an ongoing source of irritation in their friendship. Pride didn't just affect their sports, it affected them spiritually. When they would pray together, Jeremy wanted to sound really spiritual because he knew Lou was listening. And when Lou was praying, he knew that Jeremy was listening and he didn't want to look bad, he didn't want to sound bad. And in fact, over time, their their prayers became more of a performance for each other than a conversation with God. And it's heartbreaking to realize that pride can infect even our prayers. As I learned what was taking place with Jeremy and Lou, I was reminded that pride is insidious. And it sneaks into your relationships and mine in all kinds of ways. And it always harms. Pride never helps. It never builds up. So it's no surprise that Jesus is greatly concerned about the problem of pride. He does not want pride to undermine our connection with God or our connection with each other. So he issues some strong warnings, warnings that can help us as his followers take corrective action. We find this in the book of Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at what Jesus says to us starting in verse 1. Jesus is speaking to a huge multitude of people and he says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now this teaching is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's that message where he summarizes the values of the kingdom of God. And through this message, he's explaining what it means to be righteous. Now, righteousness is not a word that we use a lot, but it simply means to be in a right relationship with God and a right relationship with other people. So righteousness has both a personal aspect, me and God, and a community aspect, me and others. Righteousness is reflected in our relationship. Unfortunately, though, some people miss the point. They think righteousness is is about learning the rules for religious behavior. And if I just get the behavior down right, then I'm righteous. And even worse, some people thinking they've mastered the righteous behavior, then they want to show it off to others to demonstrate just how spiritual they are. 
And here in the Sermon on the Mount, in these two short, pithy sentences, Jesus shows that such thinking is foolish. Acting spiritual may impress other people, but clearly it doesn't impress God. And why should it? After all, if we're showing off, we're not really righteous, we're just acting righteous. Jesus wants us to understand then that pride does not promote righteousness. Instead, it undermines righteousness because it undermines the way that we relate to God and relate to others. And therefore, God is not interested in rewarding prideful spiritual behavior. And by the way, this idea of spiritual rewards from God is rather interesting. And it can mean different things in different parts of the Bible based on the different contexts. And I think in this case, what Jesus means by the reward is nothing more or nothing less than the very presence of God in our lives. You see, I believe the greatest reward we can have in this life is a close connection with our Creator. Nothing is better than an ongoing awareness of His presence. Nothing is better than an assurance that He always is with us and that He will sustain us through all of the circumstances of life. And when we experience the ongoing presence of God, He will calm our fears and remove our anxieties and enable us to live with a deep and lasting joy. That is God's great reward. And yet Jesus says we'll miss out on it if we focus on showing off rather than simply getting connected with God. We'll miss it if we let pride undermine our righteousness, our relationship with God and with others. So Jesus makes this statement here to set a context and, he, and then to be, to be sure that we grasp the point, he's going to go on and offer some practical examples. He wants to show us areas of life where you and I can shoot ourselves in the foot if we act with pride. And this morning we want to examine two of those examples. As Jesus talks about the problem of pride in prayer and the problem of pride in fasting. And we want to listen to Jesus' warning about these things so that we do not let these basic spiritual practices become undermined by pride. So let's take a look at what Jesus has to say about prayer in verses 5 through 8. He says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. Ooh, that's a pointed word. Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray. Listen to what their priority is. They love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. In essence, Jesus is saying that if we pray for the purpose of getting attention, then we're hypocrites. And hypocrite is a loaded word. Particularly 
to the people listening to Jesus because in that day, hypocrite referred to a professional actor. Now, as we all know, an actor is an entertainer who plays a role. And so we know that when we watch a movie, for example, and we see an actor portray an on-screen character, we know that it's possible, in fact, it's highly likely that what he or she is portraying on the screen is very different than their character in real life. The on-screen role is make-believe. And a good actor, a good hypocrite, can make us believe that the pretend role is real. I remember watching a movie where an actor and actress convincingly portrayed a devoted husband and wife. You would have thought they they were the epitome of marital fidelity. Yet in real life, both of them had been married several times. And stories of their extramarital romances often were in the news. And so we can ask, how could such unfaithful people portray such a faithful, devoted couple? It's because they were good at acting. They were good hypocrites. And here in his message, Jesus is taking that term from the stage and he's applying it to life. And he's pointedly saying that people who show off their spirituality are just playing a role. And if they're really good at it, they might even convince us that they are deeply, deeply spiritual. And Jesus says, no, they're not. They're just acting. Because they are acting in the area of prayer, then the very purpose of prayer is undermined. And instead of loving the privilege of praying to God, they love to impress other people. Now, as Jesus issues this warning, it's clear that he has a particular kind of public prayer in mind. He's talking about someone who stands out on the street all alone, praying aloud as people walk by. That's not something you and I would see every day. But in Jesus' time, it was quite common. And it was very common for the Pharisees and anyone else who wanted to demonstrate how righteous they were. Yet as Jesus makes clear, you're not very righteous if your whole purpose is to draw attention to yourself. And now, obviously, the situation Jesus describes is very different than the one that you and I typically experience when we engage in public prayer. For most of us, public prayer might be sitting down with another believer or in a little group of believers, and we pray with and for each other. And it's really important for us to do that. When we pray with each other, when we pray for each other, it's an opportunity to encourage each other in the life of faith. And yet, even here, we need to take Jesus' warning to heart. We need to watch out so that pride doesn't seep into that experience. Or we can become like Lou and Jeremy, whom I mentioned at the start of the message, and pride began to dominate their times of prayer together. You see, any time we pray with other people present, we need to guard against starting to think of those other people as the audience. What Jesus wants us to know here is that when we pray, God is the audience. It's never other people. The audience always is God. One of my favorite stories about this involves a man named Bill Moyers. 
Some of you will know that name. He is a political news analyst and commentator. He's also an ordained minister. Back in the 1960s, Bill Moyer served as the press secretary for President Lyndon Johnson. And one night he was invited to dine with the president in the White House. And President Johnson asked Bill to give thanks before the meal. So Bill bowed his head and he folded his hands and he began to pray. He was praying very softly. President Johnson kind of growled at him and said, Hey, speak up, Bill. I can't hear you. And Bill Moyer said, I'm sorry, Mr. President, but I wasn't talking to you. Now, I do think that when we pray with other people present, it's nice if they can hear us. And yet I think Moyers was making a profound point about who the audience is when we pray. The audience is God. It's always God. It's never anyone else. And so when you and I pray, we have to ask, what's our motive? Who are we praying to? What's our focus? Who is our audience? That's what Jesus wants us to wrestle with as he offers us this teaching. And these are questions I'm forced to wrestle with because I pray here in front of you every week. And when I pray, I want our focus to be on God. I want to help through my prayers all of us connect more closely with God. But if somehow it becomes about me, if I'm praying in order to impress you, then I'm allowing pride to undermine the very purpose of praying at all. Pride undermines prayer. By the way, I know that some of you feel uncomfortable praying aloud at all. You don't like to pray when other people are present. And I'd like to gently suggest that that also might be a form of pride. You're afraid to pray aloud because you think you won't do it well. You don't pray aloud because you're afraid you'll look bad or sound bad. And I want to encourage you, don't worry about what other people may think. Your heavenly Father is the only one who matters. And so just use whatever words you want to express yourself to your loving Father in heaven. And if you're praying with someone else and you pray aloud and someone else ever criticizes you for not sounding spiritual, for not being so eloquent, You know what you need to do? You need to ignore them because it's their priorities that are all messed up. And so if you're hesitant, I want to encourage you. When you have a chance to pray with other believers, give it a try. And here's what will happen. You don't have to sound eloquent. If you focus your prayers on God and if you speak to him from your heart, then your prayers will be a blessing to those who listen. We break the power of pride when we remember that God always is the audience. Now, as Jesus is addressing this issue, he tackles another unique thing. It's another way that pride can undermine our prayers, and it was a common problem among the pagans of his day. Now, the pagans were people who worshipped multiple nature gods. They had the sun god and the moon god and the rain god and more. And they tried to get what they wanted from their gods by incessant talking. They would just babble on and on and on endlessly to convince their god to take action. And it occurs to me that 
sometimes we may do the same thing. Because sometimes we pray as if we're trying to talk God into doing what we want. And that's prideful. And the reality is I can't talk God into anything. He always will do what he knows is best. And how arrogant to think that we were, are praying to a God we can manipulate. We're praying to the creator of heaven and earth who knows us better than we know ourselves. So when we pray, we're letting God know that we want and need his help and his advice and his counsel. We're praying so that we can have his peace and assurance as he brings about his will in our lives. And we're not trying to talk him into doing our will. We're praying so we can understand his will. And furthermore, we'll never grasp his will and never fully enjoy the reward of his presence if we do all the talking and never take time to listen. We need to learn how to listen for that small, still voice of the Holy Spirit. And He will speak to us through thoughts and impressions and ideas that He implants in our minds. He'll speak to us by bringing to mind Scripture that speaks to our concerns and situations and will only hear if we stop endlessly talking and take the time to listen. And so through all of this, Jesus' point is clear that pride undermines prayer. It undermines our righteousness, our right relationship with God and with others. And pride also undermines a related issue. It undermines fasting. Fasting is a core spiritual practice, and it's designed to live in partnership with prayer. And Jesus addresses the problem of pride in fasting in verses 16 to 18. He says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Fasting is a wonderful spiritual practice because it helps us to shift our focus away from ourselves and onto God, at least when we do it properly. And in case you don't know what fasting is, it means we temporarily deny our appetite for food. We skip a meal or two. And we deny our appetite for food so we can sharpen our appetite for God. And we take that time that we normally would spend preparing and eating a meal, and instead we devote that time to prayer, perhaps Bible reading. So fasting never is done in isolation. It's always done in partnership with prayer. And what's sad is that once again, in Jesus' day, some people missed the point. And they were fasting primarily so they could impress others. Now, I find myself wondering, okay, so you decide to skip a meal. How are other gonna people know that unless they're in your home at mealtime? Well, you can actually really impress people and it's really easy to do. You just pretend that you're suffering. You walk around town looking haggard and weary. You wear rumpled clothes and you don't bathe. And you even 
You even might put some white makeup on your face so you look all pale. And that's exactly what the Pharisees and many other people did back in the day. And it's tragic. They took, took this wonderful spiritual practice of self-denial and they changed it so fasting became an act. An act to impress others. These spiritual hypocrites took this God-given experience designed to promote humility before God and they perverted it into a performance of spiritual arrogance so they could say, look how much better than you I am. I fast. I suffer for God. And their pride undermined the very purpose of fasting. Their pride undermined their righteousness, their relationship with God and others. So Jesus gives them a verbal smack in the face. He says, stop pretending and wash up. And that day, putting oil on your face was a a way to clean up and, and to smell good. And so Jesus today might say, if he found people doing something like this, he might say, you know, take a shower. Put on some clean clothes and use some deodorant. Wash your hair, brush your hair. And most importantly, don't make it look like you're suffering when you fast. Because you see, if we're fasting properly, we're definitely not suffering. Yes, we may experience some hunger pangs, but we're also going to experience so much more of the presence of God in our lives. And that's not suffering. That's a reward. A reward of great value. And that's why fasting has value. By the way, did you notice here in verse verse 16 that Jesus said, when you pray, Excuse me, when you fast, not if you fast. Interesting, isn't it? Clearly, Jesus expects his followers to fast. This is something he wants believers to do. And as a result, for most of church history, in most parts of the world, most Christians have regularly engaged in the, in the practice of fasting and prayer. We're the exception. Fasting largely died out in the Western world about 150 years ago. It coincided with and was a byproduct of the Industrial Revolution. Because at that time, more and more products were invented and produced to satisfy human wants. And people spent their money on those wants. And they wanted more and more. And it fed into this growing consumer mentality. And this idea of self-denial went out of fashion. Where in our culture do you see people promoting self-denial today? Not very common, is it? Rather than deny themselves, people wanted more of everything, and so fasting largely disappeared among Christians in the Western world. And it disappeared because we became very self-centered. And guess what? Self-centeredness, selfishness, is a form of pride. I believe that we've been missing out by not taking Jesus seriously enough on this issue. And he wants us to fast and he expects us to fast and he knows it will be good for us to fast. So we need to figure out how to make fasting an ongoing part 
of our spiritual experience. And as we do so with God as the audience, then fasting and prayer can break the power of pride and instead promote within each of us a rich life of spiritual humility. A life where we experience the great reward of more and more of the presence of God. Preparation for this message, I spent a lot of time praying and pondering, in, partic- in particular contemplating this issue of fasting. I've been doing that a lot over the last couple of weeks. And here's what the Holy Spirit has brought to my mind. As a church, we've not completely ignored fasting. We've encouraged it from time to time. For example, during the last presidential election, our elders challenged all of us to spend election day praying and fasting. From time to time, I've encouraged people to fast in the days leading up to Easter. So we have, as a church, fasted periodically. I believe, though, God now is inviting us to take a next step. And instead of periodically fasting, I believe he wants us to engage in regular fasting. And here's the way I believe that God wants us to do this. Last year, as part of our year of prayer, we established the first Friday of every month as a time when we would come to the church in the evening and pray together. And now we're going to expand the meaning of first Friday prayer to include fasting and prayer during the day. Now, this coming Friday is the first Friday of March, and here's what I believe that God is inviting us to do. So this Friday, if you are physically able, skip a meal and take the time that you normally would spend preparing the food and eating the food and instead devote that time to prayer. If you're not physically able to skip a meal, then perhaps you could fast from some other appetite you have. And oh, in our modern world, do we have lots of appetites. Maybe it's computer games or texting or social media. Maybe it's TV. Pick something you will skip that day. And instead, spend the time in the presence of God and pray. That'll be the way you can fast. So in whatever way God leads you, at whatever time He leads you, have some time during that day to fast and pray. And then if your schedule permits, this Friday night, join us here at 7 o'clock p.m. for our first Friday prayer gathering. And as we do that each month, we gather for about 45 minutes. And we do experience the presence of God as we pray for ourselves, as we pray for each other, as we pray for our community and for our world. And I think this time of gathering together will be a great way to wrap up a day of fasting and prayer. Now, I know that not everyone can make it here on a Friday night to pray, and that's okay. But now with this, with this enlarged view of First Friday prayer, everyone can participate in some way throughout the day, no matter where you are. You know, you can fast at work, skip lunch, find a private place, and just pray. And I believe God is inviting us to now do this every month on the first Friday to make this a regular day of fasting and prayer as a church and to see what God might do in us as we commit ourselves more fully to Him. 
By, by the way, if you don't know what to pray about during that day, here's a suggestion. Just take the prayer sheet that we put in the Sunday program. Every week we have a list of people who need prayer and situations you can pray for and issues you can pray about. And you can just take that sheet home and use it as a guide for when you fast and pray. I believe God is inviting us to promote more humility in our lives by making Him a greater priority in our lives. And as we enter into this together, let's follow the teaching of Jesus and remember that God must be the audience as we fast and pray. It's no one else. And as we take Jesus seriously, and as we engage in these activities, then I believe that his promise will come true. He will reward us individually and as a church family. We'll be rewarded with a growing sense of his peace, a growing sense of his presence, a growing assurance of his great love for each of us. And nothing is better than that.